0: Hello, and welcome to the Mangal Media Show, in cooperation with Root Radio Live. I am Mangal Media Editor-in-Chief, F Levant. To learn more about us, and follow the articles discussed on the show, please visit our website, www.mangalmedia.net. Mangal Media is supported entirely by reader donations. If you like our content, and would like to see more of it, please check out our pledge options from our Patreon site. A monthly pledge of over five dollars will give our readers digital access to our illustrated short fiction project, Guide to Every City. In today's episode, we will be joined by Sharanya Deepak to talk about her article, Delhi's Kebabs, The Taste of Memory. In this article, Sharanya explores the modesty of kebabs and sets it against the backdrop of Delhi's narrative of itself. In doing so, she pulls the centre-periphery relationship that defines her native city. So I'm here with Sharanya Deepak to talk about her article, "Delhi's His Kebab, The Taste of Memory, which she just recently wrote for our uh, Nostalgia series. Hello Sharanya. Hi, thanks for uh,
1: having me.
0: Pleasure to have you. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself <laughs> first?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm a writer from uh, Delhi and I write, I don't know, a variety of things, but I, for the last year and a half, I've been writing about um, food cultures in India and like how, you know, just how they manifest and just the uh, just trying to defy the cliche that Indian food brings everybody together and like Indian food is this huge kind of traditional um you know, creature that nobody ever kind of deconstructs. So that's what I've been trying to do. Uh, so that's a bit about language and, uh, about Delhi, which we're going to talk about. So.
0: And so in this article, you basically have like a series of metaphors, almost like, a I'd, I'd say about like three layers of metaphors, uh, between mm-hmm. yourself uh, your own personal character, Delhi, as a city and its own character and the kebabs i was so basically like how did you come up with this metaphor how how did you first come up with the idea of like linking all of these three together
1: yeah i i don't know i think like you know the first time you told me about the nostalgia series and also after reading it um i did think about like what kind of rekindles nostalgia within me but also what is sort of anti-nostalgic you know like what kind of like the concept of like constructed nostalgia what kind of goes against it and i think the kebab kind of the sikh kebab role in specific kind of fits that perfectly because um i mean i guess i kind of instinctively jumped to thinking about food and then when i thought about food and how i grew up i didn't really eat we didn't really eat so much uh, indoors because both my parents were working and like I'd kind of like walk home from school and, you know, it was a, you had a life outside in a neighborhood or like outside where I went to school. So the kebab was very much a part of my life. But also I, ne- I kind of never understood how to relate to it because it really wasn't a food that I could carry, get back home. Because my parents, uh, I grew up in Delhi and my father grew up in Delhi. And my grandfather grew up in Karachi, which is now Pakistan. And my great grandfather grew up in further north in which is also now in pakistan but my mother's from the south so the south of india so like our home world was very different from my outside world uh, so you know but like so i was trying to figure out how so the kebab kind of like existed in the middle of all of these things like so it i don't know i've always felt connected to it in a way because it's like the food i eat all almost instinctively like as soon as i get home from anywhere else you know i go to the kebab shop or like when it's late at night and my friends are over and we don't know what to do we also drive to the kebab shop and everybody has their own kebab shops everyone has their own favorite um kebab. so it's like a very it's like a very kind of like intrinsic thing um in my life but also i don't relate to it in the ways that it is talked about usually like as being kind of like high culture like it's never really been high culture to me it's been something that's quite accessible so I don't know, so all of that stuff kind of came together. And I think the metaphors is more kind of like, you know, you just went with a lot of the stuff that I kind of just wrote in the article. So they just came to life. And as I think about Delhi and I think about Delhi's food, I think that it's almost automatic to think about it in metaphor because that's just how the language is constructed. Like that's just how we talk. And um I feel like that goes amiss when one talks about the city. So like it to me just seemed kind of
0: organic to do that i think one of the things that i've uh, noticed in the article is that it kind of fits into uh, a kind of more recent way of understanding history which emphasizes narratives that were kind of left out of mainstream narratives which is something that which is which is a core thing that kind of draws you to the kebab itself but it also like one of the key metaphors that you do is that you are also concerned about how your own neighborhood, much like the kebab, whose contribution to culture is kind of left unappreciated, uh, you talk about how the neighborhood that you grew up in occupies a similar position of being, a state of being unappreciated.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I think that comes a lot from the fact that I grew up... um, In East Delhi, which is, uh, you know, like how I say in the article, it's literally, it's called Jamnapar, which means across the river. But when you say it in Hindi or when you say it in Urdu, generally when people in Delhi refer to it, it literally, it signifies distance. Like Jamnapar is like the furthest you can go. And Mm -hmm. the funny thing that has always, it's always been funny to me because it's not physically that far. Like it's about, maybe it's about 35 kilometers, no, like 25 kilometers from the center for And for Delhi, like the size of the city, it's not that far. Like, uh, you know, the south of Delhi, which is also a place that's eulogized and that's talked about quite a lot in history, is as far as the east from the center. But somehow, like, mm-hmm. the east of Delhi has always been, because it's uh, it's newer, because it's built, um, it's literally bit, like, so the river is kind of like a dividing force, I feel. And like, because it's built on the other side, uh, and it was built in the 80s uh, and 70s, my father corrected me. Uh, it came up in the 80s. It's 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 always been kind of distanced from what is considered culture, you know. And so when I was uh, so I grew up in East Delhi. I went to school in further East, like on the border with uh, a state called uh, Uttar Pradesh, which is also an industrial area called Noida. So I went to school there. But then my father, because he wanted me to be uh, cultured, like literally, he decided that I was not to go to school in the East. And I was supposed to go to school with like the other culture kids, you know, uh, in the center. And it was just like, so even to him, that distance was very evident. Like he understood that. And when I went to school in the center, I went to school like right in the middle of where um, it's called Lutyens' Delhi. uh, And it's, it's British Delhi, but it's also where a lot of the tombs are, It's where a lot of the kings built Mm -hmm. gardens. So it's like, it's very beautiful and it's like right in the middle of the city and you know there's i mean it's, it's lovely but more and more i felt like oh yeah the, the neighborhood i'm from even though it's not that far is like not delhi you know that can't be it like how can that be it when this is it so i feel like there's so many like east delhi like Jamnapara, there's a lot of narratives that are left out like the west where which i don't know very well but again they're not no one considers them part of the city because they're all, they're kind of like home to immigrants from Peshawar, which is now in Pakistan, but like also kind of like quickly growing neighborhoods that tend to be a little bit, you know, flashy. There's some little bit of new money. So old like cultured, uh, literate Delhi will ignore all of these peripheries. And so I very much felt part of the the center uh, when I went to school there but also there was like a part of me that just doesn't belong there didn't belong there so you know like the dialect that speak in would be different or this English I'm speaking is like a cultivated kind of English that I learned at school because the way I'd speak otherwise it was not and I've even forgotten but like was not like you know it wasn't as Proper. polished or whatever yeah so so there's been like, so that's been something that I wanted to talk about quite a lot. And uh, I feel like we don't talk about this at all in the city. We don't, nobody talks about peripheries. Um, nobody talks about different neighborhoods having different identities. Like people almost relegate that to being something that people do in the West. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, you don't do that like people do in London, but we don't do that. Because it kind of like defies this idea that we're like, you know, I mean, now everyone brands all discourse of delhi history around being post-colonial or like answering back to an imperial sort of view of the city but like within that who gets to write is like of the city is still no one talks about that and it's not people from said neighborhood it's always people from the center you know it's people mm-hmm. that grew up in certain kinds of homes have fig trees in their houses and like um just that is the narrative like that's that's where it ends so i thought that was a bit tired Um, I think it also helped that during COVID I was kind of locked in into my neighborhood and uh, my resentment sort of turned into uh, affection almost like I've always loved it but I've always been resentful of like why it's not very pretty or like why you know why it's more polluted than the center but I think because I was I had nowhere else to go because Mm -hmm. you were just locked into your neighborhood I almost like started having a life there again for the first time since I was about 15 so that helped um, reconnect with it a little bit. So I thought I wanted to talk about it.
0: The kind of thing that you're describing, I mean, my familiarity with um, with Indian, modern Indian history and the kind of the histori- historiography of it is kind of limited. But from what I understand, with my limited understanding, a lot of what you, the, the criticism that you make about the center of Delhi versus the periphery of Delhi it sounds like it also repeats the criticism against the kind of uh, post-colonial Indian intellectuals from the 70s and the 80s. And more contemporary criticism kind of accuses them of having been stuck uh, within a more Brahman perspective and not having understood the caste differences within India as well. And I think there was the case of Arundhati Roy, I think of, you know, saying that she doesn't have caste, and I think this is also something that's said about Gandhi a lot, isn't it? That he was above caste and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, I think the only people that can be above caste, uh, me included, of names, are people that are come from dominant and powerful caste backgrounds. Like the idea of being casteless is something very much that people with caste privilege can go on mm. about. But mm. you know, uh, it does, it does like. I mean, it just goes against something that's very rarely happening today. So I mean, it's, it's irresponsible, but all all histories and all um, you know discourse, useful as it has been in many kind of spheres globally even, has been constructed by people from a certain kind of background. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of background that my father wanted me, me to be part of, mm-hmm. because he wasn't. And he knew, and honestly, I feel like I even had access to said discourse in the center of Delhi because I am from an upper caste family. So there is like a lot of things. And I, you know, he he grew up uh, upper caste, but working class. But like, he wanted me to like not, and but that's a passage that like I could take because I have a certain, uh, you know, I have caste privilege. So like, it's all just quite uh, skewed, but even like like neighborhoods like, like mine don't really fit these, um, or like West Delhi don't really fit the purposes that these kinds of this, you know, this kind of like rhetoric espouses, like there's, there's a certain homogeneous construction of like Indian identity that mm. won't, they won't, they can't expand to what is like really physically a lot of India. So yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely all connected. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's also why people don't want to talk about neighborhoods that are not uh, you know, like, it's its almost like to, as if to criticize Imperial Britain, you need to look like them uh, mm. or like talk like them, which is, uh, you yeah, which is like, which is really exhaustive. And that's, but that's just how it happens. Like our most celebrated, uh, quote unquote, writers and academics, a lot of people that essentially talk British and can talk back to them.
0: What uh, do you think? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, go Sorry. ahead.
1: No, I just, I don't know. I don't know if this is related, but I just watched this show called uh, A Suitable Boy, which is uh, a novel by this novelist called Vikram Seth. And it was written in the 80s, no, 90s, I think. And it's about partition. And it's about um, uh, a city that's based on Lucknow. I don't know. I haven't read the book, actually. But so, so Mira Nair, who's uh, an Indian filmmaker in New York, she made the show. And it's literally the same thing. And it's on Netflix. And... Mm-hmm. I was just kind of amazed with how this is the only, you know, it's got all these Indian characters uh, from privileged backgrounds, but like talking literally like a British high school play. Like it's not even Indian English. It's not even Mm. posh people Indian English. It's just like, it's like, it's like a seventh grade play somewhere in England. And I'm just like, I can't believe that this is literally what we're doing, you know, Mm -hmm. still like it's been all this time and this is still it. So yeah
0: anyway one of the things actually that i find curious about the kind of i mean i want to open up a bracket because this is something that people always talk about when it comes to like the perception of indian culture abroad and stuff like that the 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 quote-unquote i suppose appropriation of yoga this is the conversation i often have with a lot of people who are kind of interested in uh anti-colonial or post-colonial politics but who are kind of a little bit muddled when it comes to specific context because the kind of knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people have, actually, I see this more and more from kind of uh, white people who want to be conspicuous about their allyship, this idea of like, oh, no, we're like appropriating yoga. It's like, "Mm, this is bad. But also when I think about a lot of what the current administration is doing with yoga in terms of, I don't know, almost bringing it to the point of like forcing Muslims to uh, you know, do yoga and stuff like that. It just kind of brings a lot of question marks in my head about like to what extent should this tradition be respected as a kind of like spiritual thing because it turns into something that people are almost forced to do. And yeah. I, I had this specific argument. Actually, I was being vague about this, but I'm going to go in right <laughs> now. I was having this argument a couple of years ago in Turkey. There was a thing. Um, they had some kind of a restriction for like yoga places because it was started to be considered as like a religious practice. I mean, I, I think that people should be free to do their gymnastics in whatever way. I, I mean, like, I'm not trying to defend. <laughs> I'm not trying to defend this <laughs> legislation. But I was having like a lot of debates with a bunch of like white expatriates who were living here, who were kind of, uh, who were kind of open arms about this, say they were like, oh, yoga has nothing to do with the religious practice. Then I was also saying, it kind of does. Uh, But then you get into the problem of, if you're going to just treat it as a gymnastics, then you have to kind of like take out the religious aspect, which then considers to be appropriation and then it kind of like models a lot of you know models a lot of people's heads when it comes to the kind of like the political thing about like what it should be
1: yeah i think you know and this thing about yoga is like the way that a lot of people treat like a lot of things about india like vegetarianism yes yes um you know you see people like wanting to do it as like a health healthy lifestyle but not wanting to address what it means Mm. Within the country itself, and vegetarianism is very much like yoga. It's like a dominant caste thing to keep mm-hmm. people in shape, and something that possibly works. I'm not sure. I don't really like. I don't really care for the practice so much, but um, it is something that, yeah, the state is using to impose on Muslims. To, I don't know if I'm not sure if I think it's very brahminical still. Like all the schools are run on the idea like that you should eat like a Satvic diet, which is essentially like. A really careful balance of lentils, yogurt, ghee, all of these things. So I mean, yoga is also like it comes from people of massive privilege, not like even just people that have a little bit more privilege. And it's to me, it's weird when it's kind of branded as something that's ascetic, you know, that's like oh, people with like almost nothing do this. And it's like no, it was invented with people with a lot of who had one had who had time from not doing any labor to figure out how exactly to balance their body because if you're going to work the fields you don't have to like come up with many many ways to whatever figure out your you know just the way your systems work so yeah i think i'm not so angry (laughs) with white people doing. i mean like it's annoying i think it's like it's annoying to watch uh, and it's funny but like i honestly if somebody went on like a huge like if that was like the big point of it's what people call chai tea activism. You know, it's like when Indian Americans are shouting about people saying chai tea, but not like, that's it. Like Padma Lakshmi goes on whatever, on some show and is like, stop saying chai tea because it's cultural appropriation. But like not addressing that all chai is grown by little slave labor even today um, in Assam. Like not being bothered about that. It's like much of the, I think much of the outcry about yoga guys, it's similar. It's like, it's like, yeah, sure. It's, it's kind of annoying to see. You know white women profit of it for sure but like should indian women profit of it then like who because it is like a thing for for profit which itself uh i don't know it doesn't make i find it i sense. find
0: it almost more irritating people who complain about the appropriation of yoga i find them almost more irritating very <laughs> yeah. typical like white yoga nuts. you know like yeah. because they yeah. impose their wokeness on everybody else, and we have to get in that kind of like clap for them and stuff like that. I find that yeah. to be more of an emotional burden.
1: Also, I don't know if these people know, and I don't like, at least where where, where I'm from, like where I'm sitting, (laughs) nobody's concerned. Like, everybody's Uh like chain smoking and eating meat too much meat. So, it's not really a thing that like Indians in India are like, oh, we want yoga back. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I don't think, think
1: yeah. So, I think that's what's like usually with the diaspora activism, also, it's really kind of confusing to me where I'm just like, nobody, like, no one cares about, you know, white people eating dal chaval or like, white people know it's like spelling like sometimes i remember there's this girl who wrote this long article about um i don't know people in america white americans spelling chai the the turkish way instead of the indian way uh-huh. like how that made her really angry but i was like why you know like honestly there has to be more like uh-huh. if you actually lived in india there'd be much more to be angry about so there's not like so this is yeah this i mean i agree i get i don't really think it's like useful activism hmm. there's a lot of it so it's
0: definitely there so let's get back to the kebab and uh i'm wondering now because you've brought in the i like the the question of kind of vegetarianism and all that also and yeah. kind of like one of the aspects that people kind of attribute to hinduism also is that like it's like so peaceful and it's like against violence yeah. and stuff like that it's about being one with nature i don't know what fantasies there are about it but one yeah. of the um facts of life is that you know the muslims who actually butcher animals they can and i mean this is what i see in the news they are occasionally lynched by kind of like hindu mobs there's stuff like this also happening so so yeah. i'm thinking like to what extent, because like for me, living in Turkey, kebab is just like a very, very ordinary part of everyday life. There's absolutely nothing controversial or subversive about the kebab at all. Uh, yeah. To what extent is eating kebab, I don't know, subversive or in a place like Delhi? So,
1: you know, I think it's changed quite a lot. Um I think yeah this whole thing I mean just to start like the whole thing about Hinduism being uh, peaceful is I think the, it's the most marketed uh mm. religion you know like this idea that like it's a lifestyle and it's peaceful I mean it's literally it's 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 founded on segregation like it's not even like that happened later and I think a lot of and this is also like a lot of post-colonial scholars try to say that the British mm. kind of like brought it like broadcast the caste system but it's actually like I mean it's like capitalism but like seven you know five thousand years ago like it's just like it's, it's literally founded on the idea that some people profit of other people's labor and then exclude them from it so i honestly i don't see that the rise of this government right now like this very right-wing um you know militant hindu outfits that are rising i don't see them as that much different from the more kind of what people call soft hindutva the more like whatever peaceful quote-unquote Hinduism like they're both you know one just is louder and brutal and one is quiet and brutal so I think this stuff has been happening for so long and um I think eating the kebab in Delhi has definitely become a bit more subversive and also like uh, there used to be this place where I used to go as a kid called Mia Kebab which is just outside the Jama Masjid which is so Delhi's seven historical cities, and the oldest one is um, it's not the oldest, sorry. It's one of the oldest. Is the one that's built by Shah Jahan, and it's called Delhi six. Like that's the postcode, and um, it's kind of where all like it's it's uh, it used to be very rich, but like it's gotten quite poor now. And like, but but it's still where like tourists will go first, you know. And it's got the biggest mosque in South Asia. It's called the Jama Masjid. Um, I think it's the biggest, I'm not sure. Uh, but it's very beautiful. So, like, right in front of that, there used to be this kebab shop, a beef kebab shop that's been there, Panini's, for like 200 years. But he's just shut down last year. Or he Ooh. opens up sometime. 200 like, years. Yeah, it's been there for about 200 years. But like now it's become, or he doesn't sell beef kebabs anymore, you know? Like, so there's that. Uh, so, definitely selling beef in the open has become more dangerous but I always think it was a bit fraught you know I think to, to say that it's only after Modi that like things got um, violent I think we're just I mean it's not uh, it's like saying that before that everything was perfect which I don't think it was but Delhi is, was especially kind of um, I'm going to sound, I sound a bit naive when I say this but I think that Delhi was not as like segregated uh, and also even like it does have like a quite loyal, uh, middle class, you know, and also the idea of like, that the city itself is like, and used to be an Islamic capital, that was very much, mm-hmm. people are very much aware of that, like, it doesn't matter what religion people were in, but like, they were aware that, like, there it was Muslim kings from, you know, Central Asia that built this city, like, that was something that everybody kind of enjoyed, um, and understood, but more and more that with this government, that's kind of becoming like something that we can't talk about, you know, like you can't praise, like you can't praise an emperor. You can't just like make jokes about like that like the great kings or something in the open. You can't like so that they, they they even tried to change Delhi's name because Delhi's from the some of it's from a Persian word that means um open doors. Because mm-hmm. I guess that like that's kind of how they came in. Uh, but they wanted to change the name to like a Sanskrit name. So there's like a lot of like weird erasure happening of the time that the kebabs entered, you know, with the, with the kings and with uh, with Turkish armies and uh, with, you know, traders from Iraq and things like that. Like there was a lot of people that brought grilled meat into the city. But uh, I think that, that those histories are kind of being, they're, they're being erased. They're not even being like contended with, but they're just, they just want to get rid of that. Hmm. Which is, uh, yeah, which is like a sad, sad thing. I mean, it's definitely something that is, it's corny to be sad about it but like it is like it's it's pretty heartbreaking like if they did change the name of delhi i don't know what i would put. <laughs> like, i would be at a loss or uh you know it's very
0: i think it's beyond sentimental though the the, 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 the erasure of history it's also kind of cuts the potential understanding of you are and where you come from and i think it's quite interesting also one of the things that even while you're writing the article that kind of like i was quite interested in is uh, you've earlier you've kind of made a mention of something like this also when you talk about real delhi you know you talk about central delhi for example and for example i don't know like in istanbul when we talk about real istanbul we try to say i mean you've seen all the touristy stuff but you have no idea what real istanbul is like because it's population wise it's humongous compared to like the tiny center of istanbul and even the surface area compared to this okay like there is a historic center of istanbul which is kind of like the um what's known as the golden horn and there's like the two sides of it and yeah. then there's the Bosphorus, and then it's kind of splits into two. It splits into multiple things, but like everything outside that kind of like small center is yeah. huge with kind of uh, multiple story houses for kind of like working classes, and now with a lot of immigration from you know from Syria, from Afghanistan, from like North Africa, it has yeah. become the real Istanbul and you know when we refer to something like that we when we say real istanbul we basically mean the istanbul that you and i living in the center or close to the center we have no idea about Uh, so when you say that for example that these histories aren't kind of they're not being even contended with they're just being simply erased to me yeah the, the the expression real delhi signifying the center of Delhi is the kind of like a statement about to what extent it has been erased that you know you don't like people don't even consider the 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 kind of vast and really crowded outside of the center to be the real city but they still consider the historic part to be the real city
1: yeah so you know it's like i think it's a bit uh it's a bit tricky because there's, so there's the so there's the north of the city, which is the part with the kebab shop and the big mosque. Uh So Delhi 6 is north Delhi and it's where the Red Fort and it's essentially where Shah Jahan built his city. Mm. And then there is also the south, which is a bit called Mehroli, which was built before, which is also, you know, like used to be a Muslim capital, like it used to, um, but that's also old. And so the north is also old. So there's like bits of the old city. There's a place called Tughlaqabad, which is another king he built it, which is on the outskirts. But That's been industrialized completely. So that's like a really bizarre place with like a huge fort, but like industries everywhere. So there's like bits of old real Delhi uh, scattered around the city. But then all of the writing or the history about these parts comes from the center, which has some old parts as well, but which is mostly British. Like the British... Made that capital in the center of Delhi which is now the center. So those parts are kind of romanticized by the people that live in the center or in the south which is kind of an extension of the center but they don't consider themselves parts of you know those parts. So there's there's like old bits of Delhi and then there's the center of Delhi which is also which is also old but is also British because those parts were not anglicized but like the, the center was So so there's like so the center holds the power to like define the city but like the city is definitely scattered in new and old and suburban and like where i live there's nothing old like it was all swampland and then they built on the swamp land so that's something that's like not old but not um you know elite or powerful uh, and it's just like a place that is kind of like now people are a bit interested in it because everyone's kind of found out that it's like inspired by post-soviet buildings so mm. people are kind of like and it's very it's like uh, it's very like uh, urban middle class structures which i guess are like quite similar around the world so they so now it's become like something that people are addressing but it's not it's not like still not realness you know like there's no like it's not it's not included so like so I think that real Delhi is still like parts that are pretty and old or like impoverished and old, but like, it's very much things that were built before. Mm. So, and the city is growing at such a, at such a pace that there's like building happening everywhere. And um, so the kind of like newer urbanized, um, almost like hyper urban neighborhoods are not, are not included. And because it's built on Swampland, it tends to be. You know, smelly. Uh, there's a lot. Of, there used to be a lot of diseases when I was growing up, because it was all, uh, it was all marshy land. So everybody used to get sick. So that was like a thing that people would talk about. They're like, "Oh, East is full of diseases and uh, crime." So there's like, there's just so much rhetoric attached to like each part of the city, and even like the oldest bits, like Shah Jahanabad with Jahan built might be getting newer, but it can't really escape the little, uh, the way that it's been kind of portrait but the parts that the government is trying to erase from history are the parts that people the the middle class the liberal middle class take pride in you know saying that oh look at us we used to be this like secular mm. country where like kings from central asia came fused cultures intermarried with hindus like all of this stuff is stuff that people are quite nostalgic about but is is that that's the stuff they're trying to or take away um so it's all like it's just like a bunch of things happening and how is it
0: how exactly is it how exactly is it done i mean when it comes to something like historic monuments uh is it just historic monuments or is it the cultural texture of the city that they're trying to change?
1: so they've been doing a bunch of things so they've like taken out um or do poetry from syllabuses um so there's a lot of like a lot of the graffiti or like a lot of the you know, there used to be like, a lot of the signs would be in Urdu, that changing that. Mm. If something was named after an emperor, they changed the name of the road. Mm. Like, they just change it. So there's a road called Aurangzeb Road, and it's named after the last powerful Mughal king, the last powerful, you know, Delhi king that is in history, like, supposed to be quite, like, radical, but, uh, you know, that's, a, a, I don't think, I mean, there's, like, many, many histories about him, but... um so they do something like that. They just like change the name of the road. So I grew up understanding how to navigate somewhere because of certain road names. But then, like one day, you're just driving around the city, of and course. just the road names are completely different, and uh, it's weird. So then, but then they'd also do things like they'd like pick up Urdu scholars doing readings on the street. You know, they arrest mm. them. Like someone is just speaking Urdu and was evidently Muslim, they would pick them up. Um, but uh, and Urdu, but the thing is that Urdu is spoken by Hindus as well. Like anyone that grew up in Delhi at a certain in a certain period speaks it. Like despite you know whatever religion they were, it's just that a lot of traditional Muslims would study it because they studied the Quran, and so they write it better. So, so I mean they're doing a lot of things. They the National Library, for example, they've um, a lot of the manuscripts and a lot of the literature that used to be on display was by poets that lived during the kings or like you know. So they lock those up. They'd, um, actually, my grand uncle, like my grandfather's brother-in-law, who's passed away now, but he used to be the convener of the library, like he used to be the librarian for over 35 years. And he restored a lot of like old Qurans and like, you know, just like old poetry, it's just a lot of spiritual poetry. Um, but they've, and my, his wife, my, uh, my grandfather's sister was, you know, she was heartbroken because they've just kind of like taken those away and um so you know they're just like replacing um learned muslim scholars at universities with like some random hindi uh, hindu man um they even are replacing hindus hindu professors of urdu or persian or persian poetry they're like firing them from posts so it's just like it's not even there's it's not disguised their resentment of the time of the kings you know the like and all the history related to that we just want to kind of erase it like there's even apparently and this is a bit of a rumor but they there's a lot of persian poetry engraved on a lot of the historic monuments that a lot of historians are very passionate about and they take you for walks and show it to you but people have been scratching those off so it's just yeah. like yeah it's just like a lot of stuff um that's been happening over, you know, over the years, and they've also started painting, um, imaret uh, like tombs. So you know the domes that are obviously influenced from, uh, you know, Turkey and the Middle East. Like they came to Delhi from there. They started painting them saffron, just so they look like temples. So it's just like, but it's really stupid because the because it doesn't look like a temple. It looks like a saffron
0: yes dome. Home.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so you're just kind of like driving around the city and there's like little micro erasure going on and it's it's pretty distressing you know it's just kind of like well nobody knows what this is going to be like hmm. in the in the future so
0: i mean thinking about like the changes of the city and kind of uh the role of kebab as a food item i was thinking about also you kind of Throughout the article I see the kebab being used as kind of uh, as a symbol of modesty almost I, I mean part of it is used as a symbol of modesty and part of it is used as a mod, uh, as a, um, as a metaphor for anger as well but when yeah. it comes to modesty you kind of talk about how uh, as as I think I mentioned before how it's underappreciated as a food item how and how uh, according to you, a lot of the deliciousness of it comes from the fact that you know it is not uh, it is not a pretentious food. It is it is a very simple food item and it's just done with uh, a tremendous amount of care and that's what makes it good. And I'm also thinking like, since we're thinking about it from a relationship with the city, a lot of the times, you know, like uh, unpretentious food items that are part of like a street food tradition kind of come to the city and they, they kind of become almost, they kind of get into a symbiotic relationship with the gentrification process of the city like first somebody comes and discovers it and then you have it kind of spreading around in fancy neighborhoods like in in kind of like a new recipe like a food phenomenon like this almost happens every year something becomes fashionable and it kind of almost becomes like a locomotive force for gentrification is this the case in Delhi is there is there like a gentrification of the kebab is there gentrification of neighborhoods through the kebab
1: yeah so you know honestly i think i'm quite proud of delhi people for this but they just will not pay um, okay. like for, for for food that they get for cheap, they, i mean very like the one percent will probably uh-huh. pay for so in restaurants but like most of the population will not like they will be like why is this 400 rupees i'm not going to do it like i've just uh-huh. seen like i've seen people walk into a restaurant look at a menu and then no. Yeah, <laughs> the guy for how, yeah, that kind of like walk out. But, and the like, I mean, I guy think, too. No, I mean like if they're like a manager, they're just like, why uh-huh. is this like just uh-huh, in uh-huh, like okay. whatever, like not like not rudely, but I think that um, I mean it possibly is. I'm pretty sure like in the UK, like uh, and America with Indian chefs, like there is a certain like that is happening. But I mean within the city, I can't really think of. I mean there's like restaurants like kind of like. Um, modeled after Royal Kitchens. So there are places you can go to eat like really fancy kebabs, you know, like made with saffron and yogurt and like Mm -hmm. minced with like very specific kind of silver test. It's like a big stone and then you drive like a stone on top of it. Then the minced, like the meat that you get pasted, you boil it and then you do all kinds of things. So there's that kebab. But I think the street kebab, like the sea kebab, which is like literally just pounded meat, spice a little bit put on a grill and it's even kind of like little bit raw you know it's not even fully cooked um in bread i don't think that that's happening um very much uh and people still like i mean you see very like plush cars come to and people not get out but like get their driver to get out right. to, at the kebab shop and like, get and get food for the you know the house so i don't think it's happening just yet but there is like i mean biryani it happens to biryani a lot like biryani gets you know, there's like, you can online order biryani for very expensive, um, but I guess it's also like, there's more, I don't know. I think weirdly enough, the kebab is kind of like escaped all the, you know, the hype. Um, so I think the fancier ones do get, uh, you know, they, they'll go abroad and like the, you know, just like the, like is like oh, there's fa- very fancy versions that people will sell in London. And, restaurants like Dishoom and things but not uh, which is this like quite fancy restaurant in in the UK but um, the kebab roll, the one that I talk about is not I think it's still quite free from that which yeah which is a good thing
0: yeah yeah I mean in Turkey because we have this like huge trend of gentrification of grilled meat which is kind of just I mean of course you've seen the uh, Salt Bay guy and yeah. um uh, uh if you see his restaurant someplace even if you don't know the city if you see his restaurant someplace like you would think Wait, this must be an expensive neighborhood because uh you would only go there for the performance and like you know okay, yeah. you would go there knowing that you're going to get ripped off so is there any kind yeah. of like food trends in india that are associated with gentrification or that are associated with like passing fads and stuff like that
1: you know i think weirdly enough all the foods that become like that are like always like what we call continental which usually just means like white people food Uh so it'll be like it'll be like a like a really expensive but really bad sandwich that people will want to buy for like 500 rupees they'll buy like just like like quite bad not fresh um not fresh food uh so you know the, so so it happens like coffee or sandwiches or coffee vegan. definitely yeah yeah so like coffee like like really quite and we grow coffee in the country but like everyone wants to drink like italian coffee from italian mm-hmm. coffee machines but it's um i think like a typical Delhi food um can't think of it like chaat which i don't know if you've seen that is but it's like it's just very like technical fried food so it's it's pretty good. It's just like fried mm-hmm. potatoes with like a bunch of chutneys on it and like pomegranate seeds, and
0: mm. uh,
1: you know, but like, and also like flattened, uh, we call them tickies. So they're made from lentils and potatoes and they're flattened. And then again, like chutneys and yogurt and stuff like there are fast food chains that sell those, mm-hmm. but they're still not, they're still like aimed towards aspiring middle-class um, communities. So it's not so much like super expensive kind of stuff. And weirdly, like, I think all the upscale food is always, like, foreign. Uh, and not even foreign, just kind of. And I don't know, I always talk to my friends about why there's, like, no Middle Eastern food in Delhi. Like, there's no mm. restaurants uh, Even in fancy neighborhoods, they just don't exist. Uh, and I think it's still because, like, people of a certain class who uh, kind of, you know, invite these restaurants to open up only want to eat Western like food from europe even mm. now so um yeah so i think like i can't really think of um uh, yeah something that yeah I, I, weirdly enough chai is getting gentrified in i mean you can buy it for five rupees but like there is places where you can like buy it for 200 rupees in like a mm-hmm. fancy shop and they'll call it like and they use like bag tea and everything <laughs> so, like, so instead of like drinking fresh tea on the road like i know many people that would you know, walk into, like, a fancy chai shop and buy, like, an expensive cup that they could walk with and things. So, yeah, so it's happening with tea. That's I think crazy. one of the,
0: now that I think about it, also, like, one of the biggest food trends of our age is health food, basically, and kebab doesn't really yeah. sit well with that. I think, like, the great thing no. of the kebab in Turkey right now is the entire idea that it's too greasy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So, like, it's kind of... Uh, the kebab in Delhi going to survive that health food craze
1: i mean i think so i think that i still like trust Delhi people to like be extremely unhealthy so thank god but there is a lot of the wellness trend is like it's these like bowls restaurants i don't know if you guys have those but
0: you have them in Delhi too (laughs) yeah yeah
1: yeah. Yeah, so goa so goa because it's like full of these like lifestyle junkies you know like there's just so many like there's just maybe like five bowl restaurants like just serving like quinoa bowls and whatever and like curious things happening in india with the gentrification of these foods is that foods that essentially farmers eat or like brahmins don't eat you know brahmins eat like white rice and like lots of ghee and traditionally ages ago lots of meat like really lots of meat and it was a so Brahmins like demonized meat eating for their own purposes only later. Like, Brahmin communities oh, used to eat,
0: okay, I they used to eat a lot
1: of meat. Yeah, like animal sacrifices, the whole thing. But um, so all of the, so the all these bowls restaurants were used like traditional grains, uh, things we were eating before white rice, you know, white rice came with the English mostly. Before that, like rotis and everything were not made with, uh, I mean, white food was not a thing. Like it was mostly grain, like even like millets of many kinds and mm-hmm. uh sorghum you mean white food as item.
0: in the whiteness of the food item itself or <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, oh, yeah yeah whiteness yeah. of the food like polished polished food like uh-huh. that's something that is quite recent and that's also why a lot of indians have diabetes and things because like it's almost aspirational to eat uh, polished kind of food but it's not like our system are actually made for that stuff you know so mm-hmm. so the wellness trends will capitalize on this very basic knowledge and like kind of get um Food from farmer communities and sell it at like 10 times. Price. So that's like, so superfoods are actually just food. Like it's just what people were eating before mm. the 60s. So it's just really quite like that stuff really, like it really bugs me. Like, <laughs> you know, just selling like really basic food for that expensive and then not giving people incentive to eat their own food essentially. So farmers mm. are eating not healthy food anymore because of that. So there's that like trend bigger.
0: because of what they don't because they don't need what they cultivate anymore
1: yeah because they could just sell it for as much money mm-hmm. so yeah yeah and that is like you know it's just completely like selling something as Indian but detaching it from like being like oh you know we have bringing this back uh, like millets but mm-hmm. everybody like my mother eats millets every day like they never have it's just that my generation because we grew up in like what we call post lib which is essentially like in 1993 the markets opened up to the world so we started getting like food from everywhere Mm. so we saw our own food as something that was like backward you know so now they'd be like oh they're like really capitalizing on because people are getting sick they're just like going back to eating stuff that our parents used to eat but then making it such a gimmick like selling like a, a millet bowl for maybe you know like really unaffordable prices which is like besides the point, because it's actually quite cheap so they're just profiting off this,
0: uh, i mean were these food items at any point considered to be like lowly and kind of like quote unquote peasant food and stuff like that so that this is why people yeah
1: them,
0: right?
1: yeah very much and i think like i mean food has so much to do with aspiration you know like really, i remember like how much mcdonald's i ate because it was not uh, i think 2003 <laughs> was when we got it so you just like and my dad, even today, like if one of my like especially one of my white friends comes to visit, like he goes to the markets immediately and buys like white bread and like you oh. know like packaged cake and stuff, and those guys don't eat that they want to eat like grains and vegetables like, yeah, yeah. well, I mean like fancy yeah. to them, like, of
0: course,
1: yeah, so he just doesn't understand he's like why these are you know these are white people like <laughs> why yeah, are they yeah, eating yeah, yeah. fancy food <laughs> so then I have to be like, that's not actually fancy like, anymore. So it's just, uh, it's really like, it's really weird. Like, but honestly it's like constant aspiration. Like we, I think Indians get over like a certain food trend like brownies or something. And then like another thing will come to completely take over. Mm. So, yeah, but the, yes, yeah, no,
0: But like no, the,
1: no. These, yeah, no, I just that the wellness trends are still like a very small margin of people, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not like, I think most people are still eating from their like gut and their hearts really like not so much mm-hmm. uh, like nutrition is still like an alien <laughs> concept <laughs> like we, we don't really talk about it so
0: yeah when i was I'm, I'm thinking also about kind of like people's relationship with western food i mean in turkey i think people are usually quite uptight i think I'm a little too conservative sometimes about foreign foods in general like now that we have um I mean, it's just kind of incredible that until recently, say what, like maybe 2012, 2013, until then, we didn't have any Lebanese restaurants. We didn't have any Syrian restaurants. We didn't basically have any falafel until the Arab Spring happened and a lot of people started emigrating here. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah, people are very, very conservative about their food and of course i mean western food was the only one that has been able to kind of penetrate that because like italian food of course like pizza and pasta and stuff like that they have managed to find themselves a foothold in turkey but otherwise like we when we go out if when i go out with my parents like if i suggest to them anything kind of vaguely kind of new or kind of i don't know what's the word like fusiony they would be like no no no, let's go eat kebab <laughs> you know so it's still that especially with that, I think with that generation, there's almost no way that they're going to eat kind of like outside of like Turkish food. So, yeah. but when I was living in Taiwan, I've noticed that there was a tremendous craze for foreign food, like any Western yeah. food. I remember newspapers giving like kind of giving health advice to people because, okay, like people were going crazy about burgers. And in Taiwan, I think they kind of like a taboo against eating beef until not too long ago. So like burgers, when they came in, they were kind of like a bit of a, ooh, kind of thing. So people were going crazy about burgers and the burger places, because they wanted to attract more and more customers, they would make which when it comes to burgers, I think it's the ridiculous trend, like making them taller and taller instead of making them wider because, you know, it looks big. Yeah. So burgers start to get taller and taller. And I saw newspapers giving kind of like health advice, saying to people, you know, when you get a really big burger, do not try to bite it all at once. Because apparently a whole bunch of people have been hospitalized trying to bite a really, really big burger and their jaws.
1: Oh my God. Yes,
0: yes. Like they were going really into the, the, the neighborhood where I was living, I mean, I wouldn't be exaggerating if I were to say that there was a new burger place opening and closing every month, you know. Yeah. And all of them, they were kind of like, the furniture was done like those American diners and like, I don't know, Pulp Fiction or something. And yeah. it, was, it was huge. And like in further East Asia, like bread is not a thing at all. And they would have these kind of like bakeries that were doing like the biggest, puffiest bread um, yeah. and kind of marketed as being like, the original French thing and it was yeah. really huge like where does India stand between that kind of conservatism and extreme forms of western food
1: so I think you know weird enough I actually just wrote about it for this um, new magazine in Bombay and they um so I, I I wrote about custard powder which I don't know if you're familiar with but like around South Asia we eat this um it's weird right Because like indian food itself is like very complex and very good like mm-hmm. it's just like you know that's not going on but i feel like <laughs> when indians have to eat foreign food it's like the more basic you make it like the more people like it so uh-huh. so custard powder is like one of our most consumed um, it's like the most marketed items and it was actually discovered in india through um, so when the british left they left all their war stocks like their right, wartime right. stocks that was, they were to send to the to the army and they started being auctioned by businessmen, and there was like beans and all kinds of I don't know, mackerel, mm-hmm. tin mackerel. But there was also this product that was like eggless custard powder that you just mix it in milk and sugar, and you get like a gloopy bowl okay. of sweet dessert. Yeah, yeah. And Indians have taken it to such a level that like we make like most custard powder in the world now. and eat it, and it's just made in all kinds of forms. You know, it's just like pink, like a pink. My dad loves it. It's just, like a pink bowl with a bunch of fruits or. They like put it on biscuits and like mash it. Like just Uh do some really, really horrific stuff with it. And, uh, but it's it's fun. Like everybody loves it. Like everyone, me included, you know, you eat it. So there's, I think like foreign foods always come here, but they don't retain their original form. They become like something that they don't really expect to be. Like we have this thing called um, pink pasta, which is essentially just like, the like the, the sauce that people used to make dal like ginger <laughs> onions garlic carrots uh-huh, uh-huh. it's all blended and like pasta is cooked in it and like molten indian cheese is put on it and like that's like a huge seller in apparently italian restaurants so like the aspiration to eat foreign food is definitely there but there's like a there's this food historian that coined a phrase called um indigenizing hybridity she calls right. it so essentially i think she means that like foods from everywhere come here but then they just become they just like become whatever you know quote unquote bastardized to the to the extent that they just become indian like
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's all kinds of like we have uh you know we have we have like like the pizza that indians eat is like a lot like a very spicy like it's just like full uh-huh. of chilies like you know like sliced tomatoes kebabs like there's kebabs on pizzas now so uh like it, it definitely is like a sign of aspiration to eat at restaurants like you just dis- described. Like so, th- so the setting will be kind of like quite like upmarket. You know, it'll be like tile and uh, with film posters. Like usually the same film posters, like uh, you know, Wild West film posters or something. Right. But okay. The food, yeah, but the food itself will be like something that I don't think like Western people ever envisioned could exist. So uh-huh. it's just like uh, it's funny. Like for me, it's like a funny space to see how. You know, people want to eat like foreign foods, but then they want to eat it like they want (laughs) it. Tell me this: is it good? It's so good. Yeah, Yeah. I
0: I I imagine it as being pretty good as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there was a time where I think I was trying to like, I don't know. I think this was like a sign of aspiration within myself. Where I was like, oh, you know, this is not real. And I think it was after I came back from Europe, and my one of my closest friends is Italian, and I'd go to see her, um, in Rome, and I like visited quite a lot. So. And, you know, the food's really good. But then I, when I came back home, everyone constantly wanted to eat like pink pasta. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, guys, you know, this is not real. And my friends were so sick of me, like, they just stopped like, they, you know, they were just so tired of me. Because they were just like, this is real. Like, this is, you know, this is Italian. Uh, food. <laughs> and it's not
0: like they, they don't consume it as like, I don't care if it's real or not. They consume it as like, this is original Italian food.
1: Yeah, some people are like this is really Italian food, some people are like this is better. <laughs> so it's just like it's really it's it's funny. I mean I think they're aware that it's not real, but if someone like me gets into the whole like discourse of like this is not authentic Western food, they're just like, Yeah, we don't want to eat that, you know? Like mm. uh, so that's not really like I find it at the same time obnoxious and endearing that like Indians will put um chili sauce on like plates of like pasta like Hmm. they just won't eat it like they like ask for a side thing and put it so so i feel like it can be kind of insulting to a chef or like but it is funny like you know like it's funny to watch
0: i think i can i can i am cool with that sort of stuff happening according to context and according to food and when it comes to italian food like i'm up for people doing whatever they want like i get so mad (laughs) when Italians freak out about putting pineapple on pizza. Yeah. Like that yeah. is the one thing that mm-hmm. the, the, the amount of snobbery involved in there about like, because I find that no other country in the world gets taken seriously when they say no. you're not supposed to eat it like that. But only when Italians yeah. say that they're, you know, oh, you're not supposed to put that in the carbonara, then like people kind yeah. of like listen to it. So. Yeah. Like I, I'm all up for reversing that, like whatever pisses them off, or, <laughs> or for, Like I want yeah. to try. That's how I got into pineapple pizza. I mean, I've had it when I was a kid and I, you know, I could take it or leave it, you know, when I first yeah. had it. But then the more I saw people getting uppity about it on the internet or whatever, and kind of like Italians coming out on their little food blogs and like raging about it, the more I thought. Yeah. I'm going to eat this until I find the version of it that I like. And then like every time I order pizza, like (laughs) half the time it's going to be pineapple. And now I'm crazy about (laughs) pineapple pizza. But I've actually made myself like it, you
1: know. Yeah, I think it's really good. And also like, even when I was doing this custard powder thing, you know, everybody loves it. Like Mm. generally people love it, but then there'll be like the few very elite food critics who spend half, like, you know, they like live between London and Delhi, who are just like, oh like this is vomit and who eats that because I mean it's it's quite synthetic tasting mm-hmm. so it's kind of like you know these food these food critics will be like why do people eat such a such a beautiful dish custard has been reduced to this uh-huh, by Indians uh-huh. but for me it's just really funny because like everyone eats <laughs> just people uh-huh. are just like not having it they'll still buy it and eat it
0: so. what about spam I've got like a very similar relationship with spam when I was studying in the UK like when I, the first time, like I saw it in a can, and I was like, meat that yeah. comes in a can—that must be gross. And yeah. although I shouldn't be eating pork, technically, like I—I I was kind of fascinated with it. Like, it's both kind of tasty because I guess it's got a lot of salt in it, and like you can put it into anything. And for a student, yeah. it's absolutely ideal. I mean, the last time I've had it, it kind of because I'm getting older, I guess, it kind of upset my stomach. But the taste, I thought was still fine i mean the the reason that i wouldn't need to now is because i guess what i imagine is happening all the salt is dehydrating me and yeah. uh, it makes me actually feel a little uncomfortable in this in yeah. my older age but is that yeah. is that is that a popular
1: thing in india Spam? No. no so canned foods just haven't um, they haven't ah, gotten here yeah, yeah. like uh so I think people would eat like food out of a box, like, you know, they'd eat like packaged um, tiramisu or something, okay. but I think meat specifically. So, I, you know, like you said, I think it's very much a thing of context. Like I think that, I mean, for me, I wouldn't eat canned meat at home because I just mm-hmm. buy, I just go to the butcher, I just walk, uh, get it fresh. But like when I was in the UK, or when I was in Brussels, I would eat like packaged something, you know, like, um, I couldn't afford fresh meat all the day. Mm. Couldn't afford it. So like but I, I think canned food really hasn't come to us that much. Be- beans, maybe like sometimes we're oh, yeah, canned beans. That, yeah. yeah, but then they think it's like mad fancy again it's, like pure and even though we, we grow mm. some of the best beans like in the world, but, like people eat those really sweet English beans and be like uh, with very the ketchup. fancy. Yeah, very fancy yeah. breakfast. <laughs> it's just like it's all just uh, funny.
0: Those heinz beans are really expensive in Turkey also if you get it from the supermarket like you go yeah. you have all the you have all the really you know like the good beans and then and like in bigger cans too and then you got like a smaller can of heinz beans yeah still, like twice as much of all the other ones
1: yeah but supermarkets are like very much happening now like uh, because of how co- like global Indians are getting like mm. and people are moving back like i think uh supermarket shopping is a thing now but i don't think that they even existed till i was maybe 20 to you know like, like oh okay so to like about six seven i've never really been to one um but now they're everywhere like especially in goa because of the amount of western people that are hmm. here it's just otherwise like we only have little stores where you literally have to ask for what you want people get it from the back oh,
0: I see.
1: um so like now it's like aisle shopping is now becoming a thing so i expect it to boom soon but it hasn't happened yet
0: I mean for me like I don't even remember a time before supermarket I think I, we've always had it in Turkey I think
1: oh yeah okay yeah, yeah I think so so I'd only went to one when I moved I'd never been um before that
0: all right right.
1: one I went to one in Europe but I, like I used to be lost and also it was really upsetting actually because you couldn't smell anything like because of the bleach smell so I way prefer I
0: going get... to the uh the weekly market yeah we yeah, hear yeah. that's still going on, I mean, but it's just one day a week, so you would have it like more often.
1: We have it every day, ah, like all the time, okay. like all day. So, um, that's just how you, I mean, how we like. I go out, and then there's the vegetable woman, there's the mangoes guy, The, all the and everybody sells different fruits. So you just yes. Have to do a line. yes,
0: yes, yes. And
1: then for your rice, you go to the main wholesale store or whatever. It's like, yeah.
0: Well, we have come to the end of our time. And it was really great talking great. to you. And Like, it actually made me yeah. feel hungry now, talking about food all the
1: time. <laughs> yeah. <For> pineapple pizza.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. Speak to you soon, I hope. Yeah, thank
1: you.